Hello, and welcome to the RJ Metrics Buddy Time Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Moore. Every episode on this podcast, we are going to get up close and personal with another member of the RJ Metrics team. Hopefully, we'll all learn some things we wouldn't necessarily find out just hanging around the kegerator. Before we kick things off today, I want to extend a huge thanks to Alex Klieger. It was actually his podcast, Softball Diaries, that inspired this one. He's got some amazing interviews and conversations on there with members of the Philly community that includes some members of the RJ Metrics team. If you haven't checked it out before, check out Klieger's podcast. Again, that's called Softball Diaries. With that said, let's kick things off with our very first interview here on RJ Metrics Buddy Time. I want to introduce our guest. Uh, guest, why don't you tell us who you are, what your role is here at RJ, and how, you, how long you've been on the team. Yeah, my name is Nate Golubievsky. Um you say that again? I swear, I part, part of the reason that I didn't introduce you by your first and last name is that I knew I would butcher your last name. Give me a syllable by syllable breakdown there. Yes, it's a go lu ski go lu ski Yes. All right. Exactly. Awesome. Uh, um, sorry, your role. Yeah, your following questions. Uh, my role, I'm an ADR here at RJ Metrics, and I've been here about five months now. Awesome. And... Uh, for people that don't know what an ADR is, can you tell me a little bit about like what that is, what your typical day looks like? Yeah, so it's the uh, like first touch that many companies get from RJ Metrics. Uh, we are the initial outbound sales reps who scour the internet for all of the companies uh, that RJ Metrics could potentially help and reach out to them initially to see if there's an opportunity for um, whether it will now Cloud BI or Pipeline help out. <laughs> gotcha. And how, if you think about just your typical day, is there a certain amount of time spent on, on email, on the phone, on internal meetings? Like, how does your time, like, really break down? Yeah, I think it varies um, from rep to rep, especially because we have the whole war room initiative going on right now. Um, so there's a significant chunk of time, I guess, stepping back, for those who... For the original ADRs, there's a significant amount of time where um, spending many hours a day finding companies just to reach out to, uh, and then sending initial notes to those companies. I'd say probably about uh, two and a half to three hours a day on the phone. Mm -hmm. Um, These are rough numbers, I wouldn't hold me accountable to them, it might be more or less. Um, And then probably another one to two hours just responding to emails in between that. Mm And you mentioned the war room. Uh, for really don't know what that is, can you talk a little bit about like how that might change the game a little bit for that typical day? Yeah, so right now the majority of the day is spent um, searching for companies to reach out to on the internet, finding companies and qualifying them before we uh, initially send them emails. Uh, and in conjunction with the marketing department, uh, what, we, what the war room is doing, um, mostly with some good things from like Yevgeny, um, is scouring the internet and scouring LinkedIn using a tool called Built With to see what sorts of things companies are using to collect data, uh, and then automatically emailing them on behalf of the ADRs, so that rather than searching for companies, we spend the entirety of our time fielding responses and uh, taking phone calls. Cool. Uh, and do you think that uh, you think it's working? I think the short answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I've definitely seen, so it's interesting because um, when you do these sorts of automation, you lose the human touch. Mm-hmm. So you start reaching out to companies that you probably never would have before as um, the one who is finding and qualifying the companies. Uh, so you're getting on a lot more phone calls and there's kind of a mixed batch with that. You're gonna get on the phone with companies uh, that aren't necessarily a fit for RJ Metrics and you're gonna get on the phone with companies that are a great fit for RJ Metrics that we never knew were a fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think ultimately that that's success because you're not um, you're not taking a guess. You're getting on the phone and talking with another, you're adding another layer of human element to it. You're talking to a person to see, like, is this a company or is this an industry we can actually work with? Gotcha. Rather than making these assumptions before. Cool. And it, I, if you think philosophically for a second just about, like, your your job and your role, and then, you know, this is a situation where a lot of people might think, okay, they're, someone has just built a machine that is coming and uh, they took our jobs, uh, you know, going to do a percentage of what you do on a day-to-day basis automatically. Um, you know, there's that side of thinking about it. The flip side is that you get to spend a whole lot more of your time 
working on things that hopefully are higher leverage and actually making better use of the parts of the human brain that you can't automate. Uh, do you think about that at all? And when you think about what your job, you know, this role might look like a year from now or five years from now, how do you see that like evolving? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, a scary thing to be giving up that control of who you're going to be talking with, um, especially when you're getting on the phone with companies that aren't traditional fits. Yeah. Uh, to think like, this isn't a SaaS or an e-commerce company. I have no idea what data they have. Why am I talking with them? And then you get on the phone, and you have to challenge yourself as like a human to say, like, every company has data. Uh-huh. What do they want to do with it? And it, it's really all about that and about like helping these companies at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you're, it's worth it to automate that process because it's uh, we know who our core companies are, and it's time that we kind of expand that mindset, uh, which... We can only really do through automation, I think, um, because of that human error, yeah. philosophically speaking, um, and and expand it by talking to other humans. Gotcha. Um, yeah, we are we are quite a ways away from having built the uh, the war room that includes the talking robots. So that's uh, that's a plus. You went to Penn, right? I did go to Penn. Uh, what did you study there? I studied cognitive science. Oh, tell me about that. So. There's a number of different fields of cognitive science, and the one I studied focused on language and mind. Um, so I took a few courses on linguistics, a few courses on philosophy, um, and a few, few psychology and behavioral science courses. Uh, and at the end of the, the degree, you kind of just mesh it all together and figure out where does all of this lie in the world of behavioral science. Do you have a senior thesis or some kind of senior project? Uh, I don't have a senior thesis. Uh-huh. Um, if I did, it probably would have been more behavioral oriented I, I tended to enjoy the classes where uh, you create an environment to alter somebody's behavior for good mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of cool companies out there that are doing studies on it and a lot of studies being done to see like how can we uh, reduce the effect of energy on the environment how can we uh, reduce the amount of food that we're consuming mm-hmm. without saying you can't eat food gotcha. <laughs> um, so I guess I did do a little bit of a project um, where social norms are really like well known. Somebody does something, eats less food, you're likely to eat less food. Um, and I created a model that essentially replicated the city of Philadelphia and Rittenhouse in particular um, and the population there and said, these are our average energy usages um, and these are the percentages that uh, every household and every size family that they're likely to use. Uh-huh. What happens if we have X percent, X amount of people decrease their um, energy usage every month? And the results are pretty astounding. The energy usage goes down and goes down significantly over a period of years uh, until it eventually levels out. Wow, and that's partially because of the, the direct drop in usage and then partially because of the like social effects of seeing people lose, use less? Is that the idea? Yeah, so it's... Um, directly on the social effects. So I uh, based it off of a company called O-Powers Research, mm-hmm. um, and they use behavioral science to reduce uh, energy usage, specifically by simply showing you on your electricity bill how much energy neighbors similar to you are using. Yeah. So um, the project was to understand if we implemented that in all of Philadelphia, what would happen. Yeah. As Philadelphia stands today, mm-hmm. and if we included like the idea that people are going to move out and people are going to new people are going to move in that don't necessarily abide by those rules, um, and it's extremely successful just by theoretically showing everybody a piece of paper. Wow! Yeah, I feel like I have received uh, emails or letters in the mail saying that I consume more or less energy than my neighbors on on the same block. Uh, it seems like a, a popular uh, tactic that's starting to get rolled out. Yes, um, and it's effective too. It really yeah. is. And it's it's a study that, like, for this and other areas, as long as you um, introduce it in a certain way, whether or not you know that it is designed to make you use less energy, you mm-hmm. will still use less energy. Cool. <laughs> uh, this sounds like an area that might be super useful in your job here. Is that Have you seen that pop up? Are there any instances or, or tricks or just uh, behaviors that you feel are different because of the degree you have? Uh, I don't think that I necessarily do anything differently. I think that I self-analyze and analyze every phone call I'm on, on uh, a lot uh-huh. to try to see like what I talked about, what I didn't talk about, and how that affected uh, their the 
prospects' reactions, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that has been extremely helpful. Gotcha. Cool. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit uh, about what happens after work. Uh, your typical day wraps up. You've uh, you know made all your touch points and, and done all your calls. You pack your bag and roll home. Uh, what happens then? Not much recently. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I live on like a 10-minute walk from here. Uh, so most days I go home. I live with my girlfriend, so I uh, see her for a few hours and come back in. Uh-huh. Um, there's a few different hobbies I have, I guess. Uh, I do like playing soccer, but I've fallen through on that uh-huh. recently. Um, in college, I did swing dance for a while. Really? Yeah. So every now and then, I'll go out to a social dance in Philly. What uh, Did you like compete in swing dance? Or? Um, I did not. Uh-huh. Uh, those who were in my... my it was called West Philly Swingers uh-huh. in my swing dancing group did compete um, but we did put on a performance once per semester oh wow is, is that associated with Penn or that's just like a community in West Philly thing? so West Philly Swingers is associated with Penn but Philadelphia has its own swing dancing community gotcha. which is kind of interlinked with West Philly Swingers mm-hmm. how if you think that like you know Zero is someone who's never done swing dancing before, 100 is a world champion. Where do you think you were on that spectrum, and where do you think the average person that <laughs> competes is on that spectrum? Um, I'd say I was probably like uh, 40, uh-huh. 35. That's legit. <laughs> All right. Like, I could dance. I was, yeah. I was like one of the better ones in the troupe at the time. Uh-huh. Um, in terms of, like... Sorry, what was the second half of the question? Like, who so the people that were in your group that do compete, yeah. like how far behind them were you? Oh, I was probably towards the top. Oh, wow. Uh, not, so you, you just didn't top. compete I because like, you didn't feel like it. Not, yeah. because, not because you couldn't. Definitely like <laughs> top ten. All right. I, I apologize. I don't mean to disparage <laughs> your uh, your swinging skills. Um, that's awesome. So a uh, whole bunch of stuff. What's the What part of town do you live in? Uh, now I live in – I'm confused actually because it's yeah. – Center City, it's the neighborhood, it's Washington Square West, and there was a festival on 13th Street that called it something else just the other day. Nice. Um, and I don't remember it. <laughs> You're in that part of town. You're pretty close to the office then. Yeah, I'm on 12th and Pine. You've got so. the Jake Stein philosophy of uh, if you can't walk in in five minutes, you need to you need to move. Yes, I, I prefer to be close, especially for the winter because oh, yeah. I don't want to deal with the weather. Are you used to winters growing up? Did you grow up anywhere near here? I grew up about an hour north of Philadelphia, uh-huh. and I had a driveway that was about a tenth of a mile long and went straight up yeah. for the most part. Um, so if it snowed, you had to shovel your way out. Oh, wow. Uh, and shoveling took many hours. Did uh, uh, you have like any kind of like an automatic snowblower or anything, or you're just like riding nope. the shovel down the ramp? <laughs> just shovel down the ramp. It, wow. Um, I played soccer growing up, and... and Nobody really believed it when I said I couldn't make a match because I didn't have time to shovel out of the driveway for the four o'clock game. Wow, <laughs> that's uh, that is brutal. You have like brothers or sisters to help you out, or um, so they were. By the time I was in high school, they were all graduated. But I have two you're brothers. The, you're and the youngest. Sister. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Youngest siblings <laughs> unite. Um, cool. Was. Uh, yeah, what was the experience kind of having, being the youngest and having to be a gap there, I guess, such that they had all graduated and moved out? Like, uh, what did your siblings do, and did that influence what you decided to do with your schooling and career? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so, I have, I have to go through now and think about yeah. it. Uh, my oldest sister was, is still in school, actually. She's been in school since I was in... Sixth or seventh grade. Wow. In yeah. higher education. Sure. Um, and she's actually got her PhD this fall. Um, I don't think actually what they did influenced me at all. So my... <laughs> it, it influenced me in the sense that I, I wanted to like be the best yeah, of yeah. all of them, but not that um, career path at all. Uh-huh. Um, so she studies... I, don't, I never remember if it's archaeology or anthropology, uh-huh. but she focuses on weapons of the Bronze Age. Okay. Um... My two other brothers graduated high school, and one of them is still... One of them just re-enrolled for college. He went into the military police, um, and the other is working in Newark now. Cool. 
uh, weapons of the Bronze Age. I'm not gonna get, <laughs> let, let that slip by. Did, uh, did this mean that you had like access to super cool weapons of the Bronze Age uh, at any point during your high school or college? I wish it did. Yeah. Um, it did not. Uh, essentially, all weapons of the Bronze Age are in Europe. Mm. So the only times you got to study them was when you went to Europe, which yeah. is the great side effect. Uh-huh. Um, but as a result, she also. Um, is now a 3D modeling expert. Oh, that's so really cool. So she would model all of the weapons and uh-huh. then bring back her 3D virtual models to the States so she could study them while she was not abroad during the school year. Gotcha. Uh, that is really neat and I'm sure <laughs> a pretty useful skill. Um, all right, cool. I, you know, I one of the things I did um, before we circled up here, I took a look at your bio on the RJ Metrics About Us page, um, which if you're listening and you're not familiar with that page... Uh, you could spend hours on. Um, I just have like my jotted down notes here. It says, "Once a garbage man rode a kangaroo." Uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm not sure if that's the same story or two different stories, but I want to hear both of them. Uh, talk to me about garbage collection. Yeah, it's it's like a, a workout that pays you. <laughs> um, so yeah, in high school during I don't remember if it was one or two summers, I um, rode on the back. You of the remember. <laughs> It was two summers. <laughs> um, so I, I was the guy on the back of a garbage truck that would come yeah. take your garbage and put it in the garbage truck. Wow! So that's like the, that's the guy. That's the yes. real the real worker <laughs> on the truck. Yeah. And is is there a hierarchy when you're doing that job? Like, does do you earn your way up to being the driver or the guy who stands on the side and points when there's no traffic coming? Well, there were two of us that stood on the back of the truck, and right. then there was one driver, but he also owned the business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure there would be a hierarchy there, just because. He'd always be the owner. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. So this was a private company that did jet yes. collection, not like a municipal thing. Yes, correct. Um, and did they work specific clients, or were they hired out by like a, a borough or something? Um, I think they worked all of or most of Bethlehem, okay, um, Pennsylvania. Yeah. So my mom is the waymaster at a landfill. Oh, cool. Uh, up out around Bethlehem, so I uh, got that connection through her. Um, What's a waymaster? That's you, oh, that's W, uh, not W A Y. That's how much does it weigh? weigh. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, I still have the question. What's a waymaster? Uh, so she she does a lot. Uh, she when the trucks come in, you weigh them, and then when they go out, you weigh them again to see how much garbage they physically dumped in weight. Gotcha. Um, and she also manages dispatching all of the trucks for the landfill she works for. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. And was your truck one of those trucks? It was not. It was not. <laughs> So there, there's a there's a two steps uh, of separation at yes. least between your uh, so my my mom was not my superior at the time gotcha but I had a similar uh, summer job I was uh, I painted a toner factory in South Jersey where my mom was an accountant at the factory but uh, um, probably the most demoralizing job ever because toner is just floating in the air so by the time <laughs> you're done painting one end of the wall the other end of the wall is just jet black from all the uh, <laughs> all the aerosol toner out there. Um, cool. So uh, that's interesting. We got onto this uh, by, yeah, I guess, so you are obviously a high-functioning, high-IQ individual. Uh, you were working, uh, loading garbage onto a truck. Did you see efficiencies? Did you see opportunities? Like, wow, if I just wired up a skateboard here, we could go 80% faster. Like, was there any sense of innovation that sprung to mind when you were doing that job? I think there's definitely um, ways to optimize the way uh, that you go around picking up trash in terms of um, the routes, how you dispatch trucks, um, how you go about billing people and things like that. But in terms of actually collecting the trash, Uh uh, I think it varies on location. And I think that there will always be an opportunity for a person to be the guy on the back of a truck that picks up the garbage. Yeah. and you could even, like, it is automated with the, the side trucks that have the arm that picks it up. Um, but there's ultimately always going to be, need to be a, a human there for when that breaks. Yeah, totally. Um, that definitely makes sense. Do you feel like generally, I remember in college, uh, I had a course about algorithms, and one of the uh, projects was actually to write an algorithm that would navigate a garbage truck through a neighborhood by doing the least amount of overlap and, you know, basically the most efficient time. Do you feel like that kind of stuff is actually used in practice in that industry, or did you pretty much just, like, drive all over the place and, and just pick stuff up? I have no idea. I yeah. actually <laughs> never thought about that. So we, we drove by neighborhood, uh-huh. uh, so you never really went down the same street twice, especially 
uh, when you're on a garbage truck that has the type that has the people that hang off of the back, yeah. uh, you can run across the street really quickly oh, and cool. bring a can over. So you don't have to go both ways down the street. Yeah. Uh, awesome. And one of the many things that probably was not an input to that algorithm that's probably super important. <laughs> um, so then, uh, how does the kangaroo come into play? That is a totally separate story <laughs> than the, the garbage. Um, so I studied abroad in Australia, uh-huh. um, and a group of friends and I took a road trip out to a mountain range called the Grampians. Mm-hmm. And while we were there, there were, I mean, loads and loads of kangaroos. Kangaroos are kind of like the deer of Australia. Okay. They're overpopulated and everywhere. Yeah. Um, and I never actually rode a kangaroo, but uh-huh. I did try. <laughs> that sounds like an even better story. <laughs> yeah, so uh, there were groups of them. Uh, we had been discussing it for a while. Uh, and one night we decided to feed them. And so all you do is pick up grass and put it... They're eating the grass on the ground. And if you pick up the grass and put it in your hand and approach them, uh-huh. they will stop to eat the grass on the ground and eat the grass from your hand. Um, and that's the point where you try to... Try to mount them. Mount it. Um, it runs away. Uh-huh. <laughs> I've heard kangaroos are insanely strong. Like, the their muscle mass is just incredible. Uh, were you afraid of getting uh, knocked out or anything? Yeah, I was pretty terrified. Uh, yeah. They could kick you really hard, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, where in Australia did you uh, study abroad? I studied in Melbourne. Melbourne. Uh, it's the southeast tip. Cool. I've never been there. What's that city like? It's so I, I hear it's a lot like Los Angeles, but I've never been to Los Angeles, uh-huh. so I can't uh, confirm. It's very wide mm-hmm. um, in the sense that the street that I was standing on had two lanes, a uh, tram in the middle, and the sidewalks were each the width of a car lane. Oh, wow. And that went through all through Center City. Uh, so it's like having Broad Street as every street of your city. That's incredible. And was were there enough people to actually warrant sidewalks that big? In the the financial district, yes. Like uh-huh. in Center City area. Yeah. Uh, there were tons of people every day. Gotcha. Outside of there, not so much, uh-huh. but it... It was nice. You could see the sky. <laughs> cool. Uh, were you studying, uh, I assume that was associated with Penn in some way. Were there a bunch of other Penn kids there, or did you kind of just go go rogue on it? So, um, with Penn, there's a big tendency to study abroad in the fall, mm-hmm. uh, because in the spring, there's things like spring fling, and the weather gets warmer, so it's generally nicer to be on campus. Gotcha. Uh, and I studied abroad in the spring, so I was one of three Penn students who... Oh, wow. abroad that semester. And were they all in Melbourne, or they were all over the they place? They were one of three at Melbourne, sorry. Gotcha. Um, but we didn't really hang out all that much. Every now and then we'd hang out. Um, but for the most part, it was I stayed in a, an apartment complex that was all students. So okay. People from all over the world that were there. It was fun. Nice. Did you make any friends there that you're still in touch with? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the one I, I talk with most is from New Zealand. New Zealanders are incredibly oh, cool. nice, by the way. <laughs> I feel like every time I travel anywhere, I meet people from New Zealand. It doesn't matter where I am. I've never been to New Zealand. I've met more New Zealanders. I think it's because New Zealand is so far away that when they take vacation, they really take vacation. So at any given time, there's a ton of New Zealanders around the globe. Australians do the same thing. I had um, one of my homemates from Australia did a... He graduated from the University of Melbourne, worked for two years, and then quit his job for four months before Uh he was going to start looking for full-time employment and bought a bus in New York... Or bought a bus in on the West Coast somewhere in Washington, uh-huh. and then like toured all of the United States. No, like a like a VW bus. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he actually came and visited me while he was here. <laughs> um, but four months of that before searching for full time work is crazy. That's insane. Uh, awesome. Um, is. Uh, I just said Melbourne, and I feel like I've been corrected in the past. Is there, like, a pronunciation uh, that people vastly... It's, like, Melbourne? So, I, every American that I, I talk to that goes to Melbourne pronounces it Melbourne. Melbourne. I disagree. Uh-huh. Um, they, is that because they're, like, hoity-toity, oh, I've been there and lived there, and that's how I'm supposed to say it? Well, I think, like, with an Australian accent, um, oh. the R is very hard to identify. I see. But I took phonetics classes, uh-huh. and the R is there, <laughs> so I'm going to stick with my American accent and say Melbourne. <laughs> so you're saying all of the Australians are saying it wrong? No, I'm saying they're saying it correctly. The Americans are hearing it wrong. Oh wow, bold. <laughs> well, well, uh, it's an aggressive, well logic puzzled there. Nice, nice work. I uh, I know that um, you're a bit of a restaurant buff. What's the food like in Australia? The food's uh, pretty good. It's uh, there's. 
in like an Italian mafia thing that goes on in Melbourne. Go on. Um, where the mafia owns all of the produce in Australia. <laughs> And it sounds funny, yeah. But there is a series, it's actually terrifying. <laughs> yeah, there's a serious documentary about it or TV show, TV uh-huh. show, um, where there was a series of a lot of violence over like fruit and vegetables. Wow, um, so, was that one of those Crocodile Dundee sequels <laughs> that no one ever heard about? Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, but the food's really good. It's uh, Italian. It's a lot healthier uh-huh. for sure. Uh, KFC in Australia is the only KFC I've liked so far. Really? Yeah. Not a big fan of American KFC, but over there, there's, like, regu- regulations. <laughs> <laughs> you think it's the quality of the chicken, or there's something else, uh, the uh, seven herbs and spices are a, a different seven? I, I think it's a combination, probably. <laughs> cool. Uh, is, uh, on the restaurant thing, here in Philly, do you have any particular favorite spots or uh, stuff you'd recommend? Yeah, it's a good question. So, um... It depends on, like, what type of food you want. That's a, that's a hard question. Um, because there's, like, do you want to go fancy food? Do you want something for $5? Yeah. Do you want drinks? I was at, um, I don't remember what it's called now. There's a bar in Chinatown that I was at this past weekend. Uh-huh. Um, it's just a metal door. Has no label or anything. Hopsing laundromat. Hopsing laundromat, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It was an interesting experience. It was a great place, though. Yeah. Um, uh, that is... Uh, I have actually never been there, and I've heard crazy stories about... I think they have a really strict dress code. Like, they'll kick people out for having open-toed shoes or, like, shirts without a collar. It's, like, one of the few places left uh, that'll actually hold you to some standard. Uh, but you kind of need to, like, know the secret handshake to uh, to find the place. Um, very cool. Is there... So, uh, to refine my question, then, I assume, like, money's no object... Like, you're just looking for your favorite meal in all of Philadelphia or favorite restaurant to go to, uh, fancy as you want to get. Uh, what, what tops the list? I'll give you two for that. Yeah. Um, the first one, if you're looking for, like, really fancy or fine food, definitely Tallulah's Daily. Yeah. Um, every month, it's, like, one set menu for the entire month based on the foods that are fresh that season. Oh, that's great. And that's um, in your Washington Square, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I went there for celebration a few months ago, and uh-huh. it was awesome. Cool. Uh, every meal, every dish is like kind of small, but it's like six or seven courses, uh, and you're full by the end of it. Nice. Um, but if you're looking for something different, uh, I definitely recommend Marrakesh. Marrakesh, uh, yeah. It's uh, around Fourth and South, down a little alleyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Moroccan food, and they, they take you into the restaurant and treat you as if you were a guest in their home. Uh, so you get a six-course meal. It's like $25, so you can bring your own wine. Um, and it's all this different food that you probably never had before. My favorite is, like, chicken wrapped in fried dough with powder on top. It's like wow. a funnel cake with chicken in the middle, but doesn't taste as greasy. Wow. Uh, that is awesome. I, uh, I've got to go there. I've not heard of that place. That sounds great. Um, is there that, that donut description made me think of, like, Federal Donuts and, you know, other various, like, confectionery uh, 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 food spots that have popped up in the last several years. Are there any, uh, like, extremely cool trends in food that you disagree with or, like, any places that everybody loves that you just, like, don't want to go? I'm not too sure on that, actually. No I, problem. I try to avoid... Um just because it's so crowded Reading Terminal but it's not because I don't like it yeah <laughs> uh, no sweat I guess like fancy cupcakes I'm not a big oh player. yeah let's let's talk about yeah. fancy cupcakes uh, what's the matter with them I don't really see the point because I've never had a fancy cupcake where I thought it's like way better than a regular cupcake yeah it, it just like looks nicer what, uh, what, uh, so I'm like a big cupcake aficionado. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm not into the fancy cupcakes. I actually, my favorite cupcake in the world is just like a pound cake, uh, like vanilla base with the sweetest possible vanilla icing that you can put on top of it. Like the, uh, and they are granted, like, some people will charge you five bucks for that cupcake. Like, if you want to go to Buttercup Bake Shop in New York or, uh, 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 Magnolia Bakery uh, in the West Village, like you'll find exactly that cupcake for way too much. But I feel like the trend lately has been cupcake places open up. They charge you five bucks for a cupcake because it's got like 
you know, some extremely artistic icing or some kind of rare, uh, you know, Moroccan spice in the uh, cake itself. But I just want a cupcake, uh, and I don't want to spend eight bucks for it. Is is that your gripe, or do you have like additional? That's uh, I mean, that's partially my gripe. Yeah. The other part is like, I mean, a cupcake is something to eat that is really close to like being a child for me. Uh-huh. Uh, and being a child, I was never really into like pistachio cupcakes. Yeah. Or I don't know. I just made that one up. We're like adding walnuts. I guarantee and, you, there are pistachio cherries. cupcakes within hundreds of feet of this office right now. <laughs> and so it, it it's. Like, too refined for me, I guess. Yeah. Um, I'd rather experiment with those in some other form of dessert. Mm hmm. Totally. Um, cool. So, uh, I, um, I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, beer brewing. I know you're into that some. I know there are a ton of people here at RJ who are into that scene. Is that something you've been doing for a while? Is it something you've picked up recently? Uh, it's something I started about a year ago. Um, and since I've moved into my recent apartment I haven't had a chance to mostly yeah. because um, it would be brewing in my basement and I'm on the third floor and I don't really want to carry that all the way down yeah um, so we've done four batches now um, two pumpkins and a red ale three batches I lied two pumpkins and a red ale uh-huh. um, they both come out great turn yeah. good it, it's super simple actually and, and super you get like two cases out of one batch of beer oh wow it takes you like Four hours initially, and then twenty minutes here and there to to move it around. I've heard to be a good brewer, you need to really enjoy cleaning pots. Is that a that's the majority? You spend the majority of time sanitizing. Uh-huh. Um, maybe I'm just like really anal about that, but all of the directions say sanitize yeah. all the time. So you spend like a lot of time cleaning it before you even um, cook it, and then a lot of time cleaning it after the batch is done. Uh-huh. Um, and then when you, if you're using, I use two fermenters. So when you're moving from the first fermenter to the second fermenter, you have to clean everything again mm-hmm. twice. Uh, and then when you're bottling, you clean everything again. So that's a fair statement there. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. So, but you're you're three for three. You haven't had any like weird foreign bacteria spoil your batch or anything like that. Nothing weird and foreign. Uh, I did forget to add sugar before bottling one of the batches. Uh-huh. Um, How fatal a mistake is that? Is that like a deal killer? It, it's not a deal killer if you're working probably with like a stout. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the the red ale. Um, it was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not as carbonated as it should be. I see. And so you just need to drink it really, really cold, yeah. and you won't notice it. Gotcha. And is, does that affect the alcohol percentage as well? Is that uh, the sugar a source of alcohol? I have no idea. That that may be. Uh, the case, I'd probably ask somebody else on that one. Gotcha. No prob. I will, I'm sure I'll have a chemistry expert <laughs> on at some point around here. Um, cool. Then, um, uh, while we're on the subject of brewing, coffee. Uh, sounds like uh, one of the key phrases from your bio was obscure coffee brewing. Uh, so, I wanted to double-click on that. Yeah, so when I was... I'll go back to Australia on that one. When I was yeah. in Australia, Australia is very into coffee and very into, like, different types of brewing. Yeah. Um, but they don't understand what a pot of coffee is. Mm-hmm. Uh, if one of my friends, the one who actually visited from Australia, um, he told me he thought that pots of coffee were just things they use in movies like Pulp Fiction uh-huh. uh, until he came here and he saw wow. them. Yeah. Um, so when, when you go to Australia, you have to order, order a, a long black, which I think is just a double shot of espresso. Wow, um, okay. It's, it's not actually a cup of coffee. Yeah. Um, and so I went to a few cupping sessions there and, and learned a little bit about their coffee scene. Um, and there's a ton of different ways to brew coffee. Mm-hmm. So I now brew my coffee with an AeroPress in the mornings. Uh, Is that that little, like, tall cylindrical thing that has, like, a little plunger in it? Yes. <laughs> cool. Uh, what What's the, like... So Mike's... I'm not a huge coffee drinker. Uh, my fiancé is... And the experience that I'm aware of is... If you want to be really fancy, you buy beans, you grind up those beans, you get whatever, your coffee grounds, you put them in a filter, you put them in a pot, it trickles water through, and then you get your coffee. How is the AeroPress different from that, or how does it make the experience better? So the AeroPress is uh, on a a cup-by-cup basis. Uh, You can only make one cup at a time. Mm. Um, And it it just gets you a stronger concentration of coffee. Ah, okay. Um, So with a pot of coffee, you can still get good coffee in a pot of coffee, but you're not going to get... like some of the more refined flavors, uh, and the other thing with pots of coffee, it heats the the water to a higher temperature. I don't know the exact temperature. Yeah. Um, and then the temperature cools down as it goes through the pot, uh, like and into the the beans. And with 
something like an AeroPress or a French press, uh, you're meant to put the coffee on just under, or the water on just under boiling temperature mm-hmm. um, to get you, like, the best flavor. Uh, gotcha. Uh, cool. Um, I, uh, I thought it was uh, interesting and uh, kismet somewhat that we got paired up as buddies this week because we hung out in Vegas last week. Uh, we were at the AWS reInvent show. Um, you were there working the floor with the sales team. Uh, have you been to Vegas before? I have not been to Vegas before. So uh, tell me about that trip. Tell me about what was, uh, and you don't have to say that hanging out with me was the fun part. Like, what was the most fun? What was the experience like? What was your impression of the town? I mean, the trip was great and the conference was great. Um, it was also my first time at a conference. So, like, interacting with so many people, I think, was probably the best part of it. Yeah. Um, Vegas was an interesting place. It was, it's a funny place, given that, like, everywhere you go, they're trying to take your money. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think I kind of went in with that impression. And if I weren't there for a conference, I don't know that I'd go back to Vegas. Uh-huh. Um, but, Yeah. <laughs> Did um, uh, I don't mind saying that I, I started an impromptu sales contest while we were there uh, that involved the winner getting 50 bucks that they had to go and spend on the roulette table. Uh, I was there the first night when Sean McAvinney cleaned up and uh, I think at least doubled his money. Uh, I heard the second night didn't go so well. You want to, you want to tell me about that? Yeah, so Sean won again the second day. Um, he is tried, heartless. Tried really hard to bring him down. Yeah, I, it should be noted Nate was a, a close second, I believe, on both days. <laughs> Um, and Sean so graciously split his uh, his bet with Rob and I. He's a good man uh, for the second day. And Rob and Sean both went on black, and I had the opportunity to go on on red. Uh-huh. Um, but I decided that we had all worked really hard together today, yeah. and it would be wrong to go against the team by betting on red. Uh, so we put it, all of the money on. I think it was sixty dollars on black. Yeah, and. We lost it to Red. Tragedy. <laughs> Tragedy ensued. But we did go down as a team, so... That's good. The important thing is that uh, Sean made money, so there's <laughs> the, that's the outcome. Um, did, uh, uh, I know when I, when I last left you guys, um, you were inside Madame Tussauds Wax Museum at a bar, at a bar crawl. Uh, what else happened that night? Did you guys go out to any other spots? I think we just had a back after that that night. Yeah. Um, although after the AWS reInvent party... Uh, Rob and I did meet up with some of the people from Logly. Cool. And we hung out with them at a bar for a while. Nice. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, I missed the I missed the replay party. Um, how? What was that scene like? It was interesting. Um, it was it was essentially like a very large festival for one night. Um, yeah. Zed played, who's like a, a big DJ musician. They had um, they were playing video games on a wall the size of City Hall. Wow. Um, they had ping pong tables. They had free food everywhere. They had drone races. <laughs> like aerial drones? Yes. Wow. <laughs> uh, and BattleBots. Oh, man. How Were there people that were informed in advance that they should bring their BattleBot? Or did Amazon <laughs> just, like, bring a bunch of BattleBots for people? I to think destroy? Amazon brought a bunch of BattleBots for people. What was your... So this is your... Right. This is your first trade show. This is in Vegas. This is Amazon reInvent in a time when the economy is, like, nuts and there's a lot of money going around. Uh... How did you feel about just like the sheer level of excess and clear money that was being spent all around you? Uh, what uh, was that a unique experience, and it was, did it leave any kind of interesting uh, effects on your mind? It was definitely very unique, and definitely like the the interesting part was the uh, exhibition room where everybody had their boots. Uh-huh. Um, like Sumo Logic brought in wrestlers, uh, sumo wrestlers that. Fought once an hour one day. Literal, like, enormous <laughs> uh, Japanese yes. sumer wrestlers, yeah. Um, and I didn't know this, but the company that we were at the Wax Museum for, Evident.io, yeah. is only, like, 20 people. But they had a, a massive stand there, and it yeah. gives this impression of, like, these companies that are a lot larger than they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that Amazon is a lot larger than it is, given the yeah. conference. Um, it's pretty eye-opening how, how much, like, money and how much power they have there, though, just by being able to put on something like that. It is incredible. I heard a story recently about another conference that was held in San Francisco where there was, um, I think it was Sales Loft, um, which is like a sales efficiency software company that had a special uh, 
booth where they had, you know, like t-shirt cannons where you can launch off t-shirts. They loaded them up with dollar bills. So they were just like launching, literally launching money into the air, like shooting money out into the uh, into the abyss. And no one cared. Like people were standing there at booths and dollar bills were falling on them and they were just brushing them off of their own shoulders. And it's like the the signals that there might be some level of uh, hubris in the market, particularly around conferences, are, are starting to get pretty alarming. Um, cool. So, uh, yeah, are there spots that um, you hadn't been to Vegas before? What's high on your travel list? Like are there spots around the globe that, or in the country that you'd love to see? Yeah, I think I just like going to places that aren't so tourist heavy. Yeah. Um, so Vegas was interesting in the fact that it was exclu- yes. literally <laughs> you cannot not be a tourist there unless you're Tony Shea from Zappos. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't entirely know. I, I like going to new places, but I don't know enough new places to say this is where I should be going. Yeah, uh, I had an interesting conversation with a, a gentleman from Guatemala at the conference. Cool. Um, about traveling there, maybe. Um, so for me, it's all about just like getting to new places, getting to know and understand new people from different environments. Yeah. Because um, I think, like, we all sometimes forget that people around the world are the same as us and go through similar experiences no matter how different it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important to bring that back home to me. Yeah. Have you experienced that with uh, other... I assume that um, being in Melbourne uh, has given you a little bit of that perspective. Have you been other places where you feel like you've gotten... A good sense of that, and that's going to shape your that philosophy. I haven't been to too many places that don't speak English. Yeah, um, I was in New Zealand for for a week, and that was a pretty cool experience. Um, like I said, New Zealanders are the nicest people ever. I, I actually hitchhiked um, back to Auckland from uh, a few hours away. What did you um, put your thumb out, or you have a sign, or it how? was I, I met a guy. Uh-huh. Um, I went canyoning uh, with a group of like ten people. Uh, and I missed my bus that night, and I met a guy who offered to drive me all the way back. Wow. Um, just after meeting me. So. That's incredible. I, what is canyoning? I assume that's going into a canyon? <laughs> yeah, essentially. Uh, so It's like uh, the opposite direction of rock climbing? Exactly. So we went, uh, I was in rural uh, New Zealand, a town called Thames, uh-huh. uh, and they pick you up, drive you out to a mountain, and you climb to the top of a mountain via like trails and things like that. Um, and interesting side note, the mountain that I was climbing, actually, all of the trees were torn, torn down by New Zealanders, and they felt so bad for the environment that they replanted the forest. Wow. Um, and the trees are now, like, 100 feet tall. Um, but anyway, <laughs> uh, climb to the top of the mountain, and on the other side, there's all these waterfalls and cliffs. Um, and essentially, you just latch on like you're going to go up the mountain, but instead you um, obseal down. Mm-hmm. And then there's a few areas where you literally jump off of a cliff into a pond below. Yeah. Um, it's terrifying. Wow. Do you, and then uh, how do you get back out? Uh, well, but by the time you're done, it takes a few hours, uh, you are at the bottom of the mountain again, but on the other side. Oh, I see. I see. I see. So you kind of get the full 360 experience. Yeah. And you gotcha. just have to walk around the base. Gotcha. Uh, not bad. Um, cool. Okay. Um, I'm working on a thing that will probably be pretty weak in this first episode of this podcast, but um, I am hoping to like build it up over time, which is asking people the same questions uh, in series and kind of seeing what the various answers are like. So um, here's one uh, that I want to open with, which is thinking back to college, uh, if you could go back and retake one course again, uh, what course do you think that would be and why? Um. Don't remember the course name, but it'd probably be. Uh, it was a behavioral science course with a professor named Katie Milkman. Mm-hmm. I'd definitely retake that again. Um, it's it's about essentially what I was saying earlier: how the environment that we're in can reshape the way that we behave and, and the decisions that we make. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd be interested in like rethinking about that again, and and yeah. thinking about what situations that applies to in my life now again. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I have a few courses that I think about similarly where it's it's interesting getting the answer to that question. I sometimes ask that question in job interviews to people and you kind of get things in two categories. One of them is this course was so awesome. This course about time travel that I took, it blew my mind and I would love to just like relive that experience of having learned that. 
and then the other category, which I think is much more interesting, is I think I took a course and I did not actually grasp everything that was being offered there, but now that I have the perspective of having operated out in the real world a little more, I actually think that that was extremely uh, valuable stuff that I think I'd have a better you know, receptiveness to right now. So it's cool to hear uh, you falling into that, that second category. Um, who's your best friend? Uh, my best friend's name is Justin. I've known him since I was like... Somewhere between two and four. Uh-huh. Uh, that's pretty legit. That's uh, legit best friended. Yeah, I, I lived uh, just down the street from him growing up. Um, he is now part of uh, the NSA. Oh, uh, all right. So he's living not far away. Which he's is listening to this podcast? Yeah. I guess it's not that hard. He's <laughs> listening to your sales calls every day? Yeah, we've uh, we've known each other forever. We've... We hang out all the time, still go visit him. Um, when we were in, I went to the Dominican Republic one year with him for spring break, and uh-huh. it was just after he got into the NSA, and he was afraid that the helicopter flying over oh, was no. watching him the whole time. <laughs> um, uh, that's crazy. Um, did uh, did you end up going to, did you go to like high school and elementary school and like all of school together? No. Uh, so I moved, I changed schools when I was in seventh grade mm-hmm. and he stayed he went to the same school all the way through high school so I changed schools in seventh grade um, just a town over so I would still visit I think we hung out every weekend there was a a known fact that if you invited Justin or Nate to any event during high school you yeah. were inviting the other the other one <laughs> um, and, I, I had a buddy like that and so he went to JMU James Madison University cool and I went to Penn so we were not apart during college Gotcha. Um, oh, nice. But that doesn't decrease our friendship. Yes. Did it, so you changed schools in seventh grade. That is like the that is like <laughs> the formative year um, for a lot of people. What was it like? Uh, you know, making the switch at that particular moment. I don't think it was too bad. Um, I, I think it was this weird phenomena of I was kind of like a, a B student mm-hmm. uh, in middle school, seventh grade. And then I switched schools, and all of a sudden, I was an A-plus student. Uh-huh. Everybody knew who I was. Um, and it was this weird phenomena of uh, my older brother was in high school at the time. Uh-huh. He was the great student who everybody knew who he was in high school. And then yeah. he switched schools. Um, and it went from me being Eric's brother yeah. to Eric being Nate's oh. brother. <laughs> um, nice. So I think he has a little resentment there, but I made out all right. Wow. Why, uh, why do you think that is? What, what do you think, <laughs> at least maybe uh, speaking for your part of that, um, do you think you were surrounded by better teachers? Was it that the material was easier? Was it that the classmates were more academically focused? I think there there was a few parts to that. The first is I think the material was definitely a little bit easier for the, the middle schools that I was in. The high schools, maybe not so much. Uh-huh. Um, and I think the other end of it is, like, once I got into high school, uh, I think I experienced what my brother experienced was that he came into a soccer team that wasn't doing well, and he was like kind of the star on that team Uh, and I did the same thing uh, with the soccer team that I came into and that gave a lot of attention to each other Um, and he didn't do that when he he switched high schools Mm -hmm. so (laughs) cool I guess that uh, that'll that'll do it Um, it's got to be tough it's probably even tougher switching while you're in high school I would imagine than in seventh grade at least you kind of got like a reset button on your identity for a full (laughs) five year stretch there Um, interesting so uh Back to my list of questions here. Um, who do you not know that well but wish you knew more about or could spend more time with at RJ Metrics? Like, I'd say the marketing department are some of the most interesting people to me. Uh-huh. Just because they're kind of on a different floor but in the same room with me at the same time. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and it'd be cool to get to know some of them a little bit better. Cool. I wouldn't... Name names. Name names, okay. Um... I've had a few interactions with Daniel. Yeah. Um, and it's been cool. it would be cool to know him a little better because I know he's sort of like... This is Dan Levine from the marketing Yes, team. Dan Levine. Yeah. Uh, I, I know he just recently graduated college like me, uh-huh. uh, but is in a different department and kind of experiencing RJ in that way. Yeah. Um, and it'd be cool to see how that's been turning out for him. Cool. Um, who, uh, who do you know some stuff about that you think I should interview? Um... I think that John Gradman is is a great person to interview. He has a really interesting history and is incredibly smart, um, and has two new children. Recently. Yeah, he just had twins. Yeah, 
Uh, congrats to John if, if you're listening. Uh, you probably have much better things to do than to be listening. But uh, uh, what are if I end up interviewing John? What's the what's the question I would ask to kind of get at some of the interesting stuff that he's uh, that he's all about? Well, I mean, I think it's pretty well known that John owned his own brewery for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, in Philadelphia, and knows way more about whether or not putting sugar into He's the guy. He's the uh, guy to the ask. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to rig buddy time next week. That seems like a good, uh, a good interview. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's got a family going on. That's so much to talk about, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, there's so much to be proud about. And I, I was listening. He made a connection with somebody about ACDC on a call recently. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I don't remember if he was actually very into ACDC or if he was googling it as he was asking the person about it (laughs) either way uh, that is impressive cool Uh, okay so my my final question is what am I not asking you about that I should be Uh, if you were interviewing yourself for a podcast or trying to tell you know the stories you think they're the most formative about you or tell the world the most about who you are how you've become who you've become what what areas just haven't we covered yeah, I think I've touched on it a few times, um, and I think it was uh, a key factor in like my development as a person uh, that kind of shut it off yeah. uh, in the recent years. Uh, I played soccer very competitively growing up, yeah, um, and only for a short period of time. So I, I played on uh, the Olympic development program. Oh wow! For, so that's very competitively. Only for a few months. I yeah. had to stop because it was too political. Is, uh, uh, I have so many questions. Uh, number one, do you need to like uh, qualify into that after through a series of victories or MVP ships or kind of how do you how do you even get there? Yeah, so there, there's a, a number of layers, and I I didn't to be fair I didn't take it all the way to the end. So yeah. uh, essentially, a number of like tryouts where they continue to narrow down the group until they have the U.S. national team for U16s, uh-huh. whatever. Um, and Is that under 16? Yes. Okay. Uh, and so I never... I, I stopped mid-tryouts because it's extremely political and you need to have a lot of money to be a part of it. Wow. Uh, so what... Yeah. Why and why? So I started because I was uh, in a tournament with my, my soccer team at the time uh-huh. for the Pennsylvania State Cup and there was a recruiter there um, who recruited me into the the thing. So I never actually tried out. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then from there, you just had to go to the different trials and things like that. Oh, wow. And were they local, or did you have to travel to go to those? Um, both. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a little bit of travel and a little bit of local involved. Um, so when but, you say they were political, what? Uh, how did that manifest itself? Well, in the same way it does in every organization. Like, who has the money and who has the influence as... Um, and I think who has the influence ultimately lies on who has the money and those yeah. sorts of things. Like who is funding the program, who knows other people to get you to move forward in the the, the tryouts. Um, and I think I mean, ultimately the reason I didn't like it is because I felt like the I was a goalkeeper. I felt like the keeper trainer was not as good as my keeper trainer was uh, for my Premier League team that I was playing on. I see. Um, and at the time, my Premier League team was ranked top fifty in the nation. Wow. Um, so. Uh, can you? Uh, what is Premier League, and is that something that you kind of work your way into? Also, something. Uh, yeah. So, different clubs can can be put into different leagues, and there's definitely qualifications that um, are necessary for that. Yep. Um, and then, as a soccer player, you try out for the club itself. I see. Uh, and if the club, like, so that you can call them all Premier League, but there's different levels of that. Um, and so to get into certain leagues, your team has to re- meet a certain qualification. Mm-hmm. Um, and we essentially could have gotten into any league oh, wow. in the Northeast. Gotcha. So um, is the Premier League the Premier League? Uh, like, is there, a, is there like, a league that's higher than that? Of, like, high school kids. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, um, we, so basically, for high school kids soccer, you were on a top 50 team in the nation. Yes, we played. Uh, we actually represented the Northeast in nationals one year. Wow! Um, so there were five teams: Northeast, South, East, Central. I think there were two for like Central yeah. and West Coast. Um, so really, it's like top eight for for that one. for that moment for that moment <laughs> yeah. in time. Yeah, um, we were, California destroyed us. Yeah. But. <laughs> awesome. So, uh, 
uh, you answered with soccer when I asked about it being kind of a part of your story or a, a formative part of you, but you also mentioned a few times that it's a really short period in time. So what was it about that moment? What what was so concentrated in there that it still has such a lasting effect on you that it's kind of your gut answer to that? Yeah, I think it was like, it, it happened throughout. Um, so I played soccer all of high school and, and the development started, like I played soccer all of my life actually. Um, and the development started with like the coaches that were training you and because you spend hours and hours every week with them. Um, and they're not just training, like, soccer players at that point. They're training you to be, like, a young adult. Um, and I had one coach who was extremely influential to me, and he uh, got into an accident uh, on New Year's Day uh, a while back and passed away. Mm. Um, and I think that, like, he was kind of the defining of, like, a lot of my priorities and, and where... Uh, I place myself as an adult and as a human being. Wow. Um, and I owe that to him, uh, whether or not I play soccer. Yeah, um, that's a powerful thing. Have you stayed <laughs> in touch with any of his family or any of the kind of people that you knew in college? I, I have not. Uh-huh. Um, after So after he passed, our team kind of fell apart. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I played for a few other premier teams and never really kind of found it again. Yeah. Um, but, like, a lot, of the, a lot of the things as an adult that he would... He would talk about are things like being on time, being respectful, um, understanding what your priorities are, and like when you make a commitment, you make this commitment, and you have to go through with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, fulfilling those things are, are really the important yeah. side to me. How old were you when that happened? Uh, I was probably 15, 16. Interesting. So, around a similar time when your academic career started turning around, also. Yes. Yeah. Very interesting, uh, very powerful stuff. Um, I uh, one last thing I just want to ask about. I just noticed uh, a tattoo on your uh, left bicep there. What's your tattoo and what's your tattoo story? Uh, so I mean, this one is from Pink Floyd. It's oh wow, it's the Dark Side of the Moon. Oh, yeah. that's great. I just saw the corner of the rainbow there. Okay, yeah. there we go. Uh, Full out Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon tattoo. Yeah, so there's a whole other story about musical interests and musical careers that almost happened. Yeah. Um, and the, the underlying to that is that Pink Floyd was the first band that ever sort of musically influenced me. Um, and I think during high school was a time where uh, I relied on music a lot for emotional outlets and things like that. Yeah. Like we all do. Sure. Um, and so... There's a few others, but... <laughs> yeah, um, I've got time. Uh, the uh, What instrument did you play, and when did you get started with that? I played no instrument, uh, and I wasn't actually in a... Um, in a band or anything? In a band or anything. I uh, Around the same time, actually, uh, eighth grade, I, I got really into like underground music and things like that, angsty teenager stuff. Sure. Um, but I, it wasn't from an angsty perspective. It was I would listen to this music, and I would feel the emotions that the artists had. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to be a part of like helping these small bands become this huge deal. What are um, what are some of the bands? Anything anybody might have heard of that you were into? The the bigger ones that. Well, I was into like really small things. There was one from Philadelphia called Valencia, which is like a punk rock like teenage yeah. band, of course. Um, a lot of the smaller stuff, probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll get to it in a little bit. But I I did work for. Bands like Third Eye Blind. Oh wow! At some point. Um, so wait, when you say you you, you worked for them, what um, kind of work? It it was totally like volunteer. I wasn't paid to do it. Yeah. Um, but in eighth grade, I when I went to see this band called Valencia, I saw them in Philadelphia at the Trocadero. Uh huh. Uh, it was my first time in Philly ever. Um, and no, I, that's a lie. That was the, the second time I saw them was at Trocadero. The first time was in Doylestown in a guitar shop. Wow. Um, and I saw them. It was like fifty people, and I decided right then and there, like how do I help these guys do what they're doing because I believe in it uh-huh. um, and I contacted the record label and said how do I do this and the record label got in touch with me and was like hey like, you can help us out with our advertising and our promotions um, and so I started with the record label helping them out helping the band out went to a few shows for free um, and then they got me in touch with uh, another record label at some point um, it was a division of Red Records which is a division of Sony alright um, and a project called Gen 79 uh, which brought in like 10 bands at a time and would do the marketing and advertising for those bands mm-hmm. uh, and so for about I'd say probably 5 years 8th um, grade no 8th grade through senior year beginning okay. of senior year yeah. um, I worked 
for them with all of these artists. Uh, anytime they'd come into town, I'd go do promotions for them, hand out flyers, work their booth. Uh, I went to like Warp Tour and Bamboozle for them. Um, that is great. So <laughs> as a side effect, you got free access to all these awesome tours, yeah. and uh, that is really cool. Were there other... Uh, do you feel like... Um, do you ever get that... Uh, you know, stereotypical like hipster esque reaction. Like I knew these guys before they were big, and all their new fans are posers. Like, how do you think about when it's something that you put a lot of energy into to make more popular actually ended up becoming more popular? Do you have any kind of like crisis about that, or are you just flat out happy for them and it's awesome? I mean, I'm happy for them, and I think that there's uh, like different levels of it and different like it, it's it's funny to watch because there's. Uh, like levels of emotion and levels of attachment that you get. Like I definitely become more attached to larger. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm not gonna. <laughs> yeah, you gotta double down. <laughs> um, but I think the the reason being, like, it's that I'm so attached to this band. I want them to be big. Uh, I put in work. They get big. Great. Like they have succeeded. My work with them is done. Who else can I now go help? I don't yeah. care about them. Um, <laughs> kind of happens. Yeah, and uh, like you care about uh, where you matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so. I definitely like kind of put off that hipster vibe sometimes of like, oh, I listened to them and I liked this album better, but of course I like that album better because that's the album I was helping out with. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. Great stuff. Uh, I want to thank so much um, I guess Nate uh, from the Archimetrics ADR team. Uh, say that last name for me one more time. Golubievsky. Golubievsky. Uh, go say hi. Give him a high five. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on RJ Metrics Buddy Time.